What's up? It's Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Thanks for listening to the Under the Hood podcast presented by Coors Light. Stay inside and buy your Coors Light online. Find out how at get.coorslight.com. Coors Light, take time to chill. Live from the First Midwest Bank Studio on State Street, this is ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Jonathan Hood. WMVP Chicago. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Follow on Twitter at TweetJHood. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights at 7 here on ESPN 1000 in the brand new ESPN Chicago app. So glad that you're with us. Sosa versus McGuire, the documentary taking place at 30 for 30 on Sunday night. A former teammate of Sammy Sosa, part of that uh, 1998 Cubs team. Second baseman Mickey Morandini is with us here on ESPN 1000. Mickey, Jonathan Hood, thanks so much for your time. Oh, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm looking forward to that uh, documentary on, on TV. I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to see what, what, what what's the truth and what's a lie. I can't wait to see how that all materializes coming up <laughs> on Sunday. I want to get your thoughts, Mickey, about the Sosa versus McGuire. But first, your memories of the 98 season. What do you remember most? You know, the home run chase was big, but what do you remember most about the season, the ebb and flow of it? Yeah, you know, I was uh, – I just came over – I had to uh, replace Ryan Sandberg that year, and obviously uh, he was obviously a huge fan favorite there. So I kind of had a lot of pressure on me to come in and play well. But, you know, I just remember them going out and getting me and Henry Rodriguez and Jeff Blauser and Rod Beck and bringing in some, some veteran guys that knew how to play the game. And I honestly don't remember where we were picked. I think I think we were picked to come in second or third place or something like that. But uh, we really gelled pretty early and played well early and, we were in the race for most of the year, but there's really three things that stuck out for me that year. One was the Kerry Wood performance, mm-hmm. a 20-strikeout performance. Uh, the other one was the Brant Brown dropped fly ball in left field late in the season that almost cost us a playoff spot. And then, obviously, the, the Sosa-McGuire uh, epic home run battle. Those three things really stick, stuck out in my mind, and I still think about those things today. Mickey, we still are talking about the Kerry Wood 20 strikeout game. We just talked about the uh, anniversary of that. Everybody apparently were at the ball at the ballpark because everyone says they had a ticket. I was there. I was there. Like every, everyone talks about how special that game was. Twenty strikeouts. Uh, it's it's hard to find a lot of pitchers in history that were able to have a performance quite like Kerry that day. Yeah, that is the best stuff I've ever seen one pitcher have on a particular day. I mean, his his fastball was electric, um, but that breaking ball that he had that day was the best breaking ball I had ever seen in a game. I mean, it was breaking 8 to 10 feet, and that Houston Astros lineup was really good. I mean, they had a lot of solid hitters in that lineup, a couple of Hall of Famers to be exact, and he just made them look silly, and it was it was just really exciting to watch him pitch that day. All-star second baseman Mickey Morandini with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. So, Mickey, when we take a look at at Sosa, what do you remember most about him as a teammate? You know, he was a good teammate. Uh, He was passionate. He loved to play the game. I mean, there was nothing he loved to do more than than play baseball. And, you know, obviously I remember him always running out the right field and the fans in right field saluting him as he ran by. But he took hitting very seriously. Uh, he worked hard on his hitting. Uh, he was in that cage every day working on his hitting. And he just put it all together that year. I actually just went back and looked at some of his stats from that year. He obviously hit 66 homers, but 
Uh, he had 20 home runs in June, and he had nine multi-home run games, which is pretty incredible. I mean, he was just locked in that year, and um, it was good for me because I hit in front of Sammy, and <laughs> so I saw a lot of I saw a lot of fastballs that year, and I had career highs in like six, seven different categories that year, and I really attributed it to hitting in front of Mark Grace and Sammy Sosa because guys would throw me fastballs trying to get me out because they did not want to face those two guys and. Um, it was sure was fun hitting in, in Wrigley Field that year. So as you are, are just day-to-day, you're just taking care of your business, making sure that your defense is solid, that you're getting good at-bats, and just trying to help this ball club win 90 games, in which the Cubs did win 90 games that year uh, in 1998. What's going through your mind? Because every day there's something about someone hitting a lot of home runs or Sosa and McGuire going back and forth. What were you thinking as a player while this was going on? I literally was in awe, I really was, of both players. What they did that year was 70 and 66 home runs, and September was incredible the way, you know, Sammy hit one, and you'd look up on the scoreboard and McGuire hit one. The next day, McGuire hit one, then Sammy would hit, that, hit one. And it just went back and forth until really about the last week where they were neck and neck, and then finally Sammy cooled off and McGuire kept going. But um, I was just in awe of what Sammy was doing that year. It, 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 was, it was amazing. It truly was amazing. Former Cub Mickey Morandini with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. Mickey, there's always you're always going to have some fans travel with you when you're on the road. And uh, with the Phillies, I'm sure you had some of that. But with the Cubs, because of the power of WGN for so many generations, you saw Cub fans, wherever you go, they're always around. They come in droves to see the Cubs home and road. What was that like being part of the ball club, knowing that people were coming to see you and the ball club and, of course, Sosa and what he did? Yeah, it was pretty incredible. Yeah, obviously the Cubs, they travel well no matter what city you're going to. There are Cub fans, and like you said, because of WGN, everybody's watching Cubs baseball on TV, and uh, it was fun. You know, we didn't play a lot of road games, to be honest with you, because a lot of the times the crowds were, you know, 50-50 or if, if not more, and uh, I always remember going into St. Louis because obviously those two teams just, you know, really can't stand each other, and we had some fierce battles with the Cardinals that year, and um, it was always nice because you had that, like I said, that 50-50 split of Cubs fans, Cardinals fans, and um, it was just a lot of fun. I can remember going in there in, in mid-September uh, when McGuire actually broke uh, the record um, against Traxel, and that, that, uh, that, that ballpark was electric that night. It was pretty fun. Anytime that you bring up Jim Riggleman, anybody bring up Jim, Jim Riggleman, usually the thing Mickey people says, ah, good baseball man, solid baseball man. And Riggleman was the manager for that magical 98 season. And to me, on the surface, just talking to Riggleman during that time just seemed to me like an ultimate player's manager where he wasn't laid back necessarily, but uh, was always on the player's side. What would you remember most about Riggleman? Yeah, I call him a player's manager. He was a, a very uh, a manager that that kind of played the percentages a lot. Um, you know, lefty on lefty, pinch hitting a righty. Uh, when there was a righty on the mound, pinch hitting a lefty, and and things like that. He used he used his entire roster very well, and uh, I loved playing for Jim. He just you know just go out, play the game the right right way, play hard. Um, but he did things his way. Um, there there wasn't any ball players, you know telling him how to, how to manage or how to do things. He did things his way, and um, like I said, he was a player's manager, but he was, he was very aggressive with, with you know, 
pinch hitting and and things like that, bringing lefty to lefty, then righty to righty, and using his entire roster. He's really good at that. If you get a universal DH, Mickey, you're not going to have any more of that nonsense. If you get, yeah, if gonna... <laughs> I know. I'm a National League guy. I hate to see the DH come in. I understand why, and, and I know it's coming, but I still like the, you know, the, the, the pinch hit here in the fifth inning for the pitcher and things like that, but I know it's going to go away for the better. So, you know, Mickey, I have not seen this documentary yet, uh, but I'm looking forward to seeing Sosa uh, and McGuire, that magical year of 1998 on ESPN for the 30 for 30. But here's the thing that's a disconnect for some Cub fans. Here in 2020, still, Tom Ricketts, one of the, the new owner for this Cubs team, feels that Sammy Sosa needs to apologize. Now, he's never said apologize for what, but Sosa has not been around the ball club in years. Um, right. So, so if you are Tom Ricketts, what's the likelihood that you allow Sosa to return to the Cubs? Well, I don't know. I don't know what the beef is about. Like you said, I don't know what he's. What is he apologizing for? Is it a possible use of steroids? I don't know what the, what the apology is for. So um, he's an iconic figure in that town. There's no doubt about it. Um, what he did for that city during the years he played there was incredible and. Um, they need to iron out their differences. Somebody needs to say, uh, you know, be a better man about it and get those those two together and get Sammy in. Now, I used to do the Cubs convention. I used to do it uh, quite often, and I know all, Sammy always came to the Cubs convention. Um, so I'm assuming he hasn't been there in a long, long time. So um, maybe it would be nice to just get Sammy back to the Cubs convention. I'm sure there would be a huge welcome for him then. So, again, because Ricketts has not said on the record exactly what, he just says apologize, and it just, it just seems kind of open there unless he actually says it. So if, saying it is for steroids, well, the one thing we do know about Sosa is, like I watched him with the White Sox all the way to the Cubs. Yeah, he was definitely a, a different-looking player. There's no question about that. I, but I will say that he has never been on the record uh, you know, accused of steroid use. He was part of the Mitchell Report, but never tested positive. So should Mitchell right. Report guys, should they be allowed to be in the spotlight more, even to the Hall of Fame? Oh, no question. If you're not on the, you know, if you haven't been proven, tested, you know, positive, uh, you know, <laughs> there's nothing you can do about it. So you're going to have to accept that they didn't do it. Um and, uh, you know, Sammy definitely deserves Hall of Fame consideration. There's no question about it, some of the numbers that he put up. I mean, they always talk about Hall of Famers changing the game when they played uh, during their time, and Sammy definitely changed the game during his time with his power. So, um, you know, hopefully, like I said, the Ricketts family and Sammy can work it out. And, uh, you know, Sammy belongs back in Chicago, and, and he belongs hanging out with his fans, that's for sure. All-Star second baseman Mickey Morandini with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. As, uh, Mickey was part of that uh, great 98 team, the Cubs team that went to the playoffs uh, and was a teammate of Sammy Sosa. So you've you've been through this before, Mickey, as far as a work stoppage. This sucks for a baseball fan right now here in June where there's no baseball. Go, go back to 94 uh, into 95. What do you remember most about that work stoppage and how it affected you? Well, I was young. I was. Uh, it would have been my third full year, I think, in the big leagues. So I obviously wasn't making big money at the time. And um, but uh, you know, the big thing is, and, and it happens every negotiation, is that they're far apart to begin with. You know, they have words for each other. They throw out allegations, things like that. 
And then when it comes to crunch time, it always gets worked out. Both sides, you know, start talking. They start, uh, you know, giving and taking a little bit, and it gets done. And that's that's what I think is going to happen here again. We're kind of getting to crunch time here, and hopefully by the end of the week they've made some movement. Um, but I just remember just kind of waiting. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I know we stopped the 94 season short. And then the 95 season, if I'm not mistaken, started a little bit late, maybe mid to late April. But um, as a young guy, as a young player, you just kind of roll along with it and, and hope it gets settled. I just know just during that year, those times, Mickey, that Bud Selig did love the game. You might have been the nutty professor with the glasses and everything else, but he loved the game. Uh, and with Rob Manfred and what's going on with Tony Clark, it's just I just think it's unfortunate on both sides of this issue that – here, here we are through this pandemic. If nothing else, baseball players could be playing in Florida and Arizona, and they're they're as far apart as they were in the off season. You know, it, it is it it is amazing to me. I'm wondering whether you foresee baseball returning, and both sides can come into an agreement. I do. I do think it's going to return. I think both sides are way too smart to not not have a season this year. They have have to have a season this year, and. Um, the sad part about, it, like you said, is baseball could be up and going right now. The first sport back, everybody, you know, it's going to be popular. Everybody's happy. They're they're able to watch the, you know, the games on TV. They finally get to watch something live, you know, and and they kind of blew that. And they had that opportunity, and um, they let that pass by the wayside. But I think they're going to get it done. I really do. It seemed to be a little, even though the. The players rejected the offer from yesterday. There seemed to be a little bit of movement, maybe a little bit of room for discussion. So hopefully the players can counter with something that, uh, you know, can start these talks up a little more fierce. And like I said, hopefully by the end of the week we've got something, uh, some movement going, and we can uh, get these guys into spring training and get this season going, hopefully in July. Mickey, um, as you were saying earlier, you know, talking about this, these Mitch Report players, you know, you're a guy that played the game the the right way, and then on top of that, made sure that you did it in a way where fans can respect it. I'm just looking at the, the future for for Major League Baseball players like Sammy Sosa, you know. And again, I, I've not seen this documentary, but I'm sure there's going to be a lot of talk about him and McGuire. McGuire admitted that he, that he was uh, part of that steroid culture. Sammy says that he has not. And I'm wondering, right. like, for those that admit it, do you think that McGuire, guys like that, should be in the Hall of Fame? Or Paul Merrow, players like that. For guys that admitted it, probably not. Not at this stage in the game. Um, but I, I look at certain players like a Barry Bond. Mm-hmm. I mean, my goodness, he was the best player, one of the best players to ever play the game. And I know he was the best player to ever play in my time when I was playing. Does he deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? Absolutely. I mean, the things he did on the field and the numbers that he put up were truly amazing. So um, it's hard to say. You know, it's going to be an argument that's going to be there for a long, long time. And um, But I, I honestly believe there's guys that are in the Hall of Fame right now that, that did steroids. They just, like you said, they weren't on the, the list. They didn't admit to it. There was no proof. And so um, if that's the case, you know, for me, if you deserve to be in, you deserve to be in. I agree. And, and if, the, if it's found that some of these guys did take steroids, that's why you tell the story at the Hall of Fame. You know, there's, there's a reason you can right. put that on the plaque, Mickey, and just say, you know, this is an era in which 
the Players Association and um, the commissioner were not on the same page when it comes to steroids. There was no edict that was put out there, and so this is what it is. You know, it was, and, and you know, you mentioned Bonds. Look, I, I you, 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 you played against him when he's at the Pirates, did you? Yeah, I played against the Pirates and Giants. I'm telling you. Yeah, he's the best player I've ever seen play. <laughs> so, the things he did were were amazing. Skinny Bonds was was talented. <laughs> like right. when he first came in, that that guy was hitting hitting the ball a ton with the Pirates. I remember that. Right. Uh, early, you know, early in his career, and then so he get, and then with the Giants, as you mentioned, he becomes a monster, and he's like the the home run king. Uh, and it, so it's um, either way, right. he was talented. So I agree with you. Yeah, and, and Roger Clemens, really? Roger Clemens, who won seven Cy Youngs and was a dominant pitcher for how many years? 15 to 20 years? He's not in the Hall of Fame. I I just have trouble with it. Yeah, no question. Well, I hope that you get a chance to watch Sosa and McGuire, uh, the documentary. It should be interesting, Mickey, to see and hear from both sides because with the Cardinals and Cubs, that big rivalry, and then these two going back and forth in that June of 98, that's uh, going to be a fun story to tell. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it, and I appreciate uh, the chance to come on your show today. It was a lot of fun. Mickey, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it as always. All right, take care. Stay safe, my friend. All right, it's uh, all-star second baseman Mickey Morandini with Jonathan Hood right here on ESPN 1000. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. This is Chicago's home for sports. Stream ESPN 1000 easily on the all-new ESPN Chicago app. You're listening to Under the Hood on ESPN 1000. We'll do Tales from the Hood coming up at 8.30 right here on ESPN 1000. As we redraft the 2000 NBA draft, we'll hear from our guy Andre Snellings uh, from ESPN.com coming up. We've got some news here regarding Major League Baseball. We're waiting for the owners and the players to come together on some kind of agreement. We'll see what's happening here with Jesse Rogers, who covers Major League Baseball for ESPN.com. Jesse, thanks for joining me. What is the latest? Well, the players have made another offer back to the owners. The owners' last offer came yesterday, which was 76 games at basically 75% of their prorated salary. The players have responded with an 89-game season at full prorated salary. So we're closing the gap a little bit, but we're still quite a ways away. That 89-game season would start on July 10th and end October 11th, which is past uh, you know the, what the regular season is supposed to end at, which means ripping up the TV schedule and, and, and making a new one, especially with an expanded postseason, which the players have offered for both 2020 and 2021. 16 teams would make the playoffs those years. Uh, this year and next. So that's the players' counterproposal. Again, 89 games at full salary compared to 76 games at 75%. That's the gap. It, it's it's small in one sense, Jay Hood, but it's also pretty large in another sense. It depends on your perspective. Yeah, it, it is. Um, it, it sounds like they're getting closer to just having half the season, 82. That's what it's, it's getting close to, right? Yeah, which is kind of what they've been talking about all along, but the owners won't pay the full prorated salary. So maybe, maybe the owners come back with something that's close to that and, um, you know, close to the full proration. And finally, the players might come off of uh, their, their desire for 100% prorata. So that that's where we're at. If the players come off that 100% prorated salary, we might have a deal. But I'm not sure that they're going to do that. 
Um, just so I'm clear, the start date of this would be the same in July? It would be July 11th. Or, I'm sorry, July 10th. So it's a little bit later than they initially wanted in order to have the regular season end on September 27th, which is when it was supposed to end, you know, going back to before the pandemic. So that's the owners would like to keep it September 27th. Mostly, I believe, because the TV schedule is set for October. I joked on the KBO broadcast, if they go into November, December, you might see baseball on the Cartoon Network. So, um, uh, yeah, that, that, that's the situation. So 89 at 100 percent, 76 at 75 percent. It sounds like there's there's a middle ground to be had there. But, you know, that that's you and I talking. I just don't know if that, that's the truth. They can wrap this up. I think that if, that sounds like a good deal to me on the short term, for sure. Yeah, I, I think the owners are going to say no to this offer, 89 games at 100% prorated. But like I said, we're getting closer. We started at 114 right? and, you know, a version of 82, and now we're, we're down to this. So I, I think there's a chance that they, they could still find some middle ground. But, but a lot of this is optics, too. Neither side wants to look like they're unwilling to budge to the public. Um, and so this is another chance for the players to say, okay, we went from 114 to 89. The owner said, well, we went from what could be 50 to 76, but actually they started at 82 and went down. So yeah, there's a lot of layers to this thing. Uh, bottom line is uh, people don't want to hear the details. They just want to see baseball again. Yeah, it, it is uh, fascinating. I see you and Jeff Passner working on this on ESPN.com. You guys are hammering this uh, 89 game proposal that is out there. Yep, we are. And um, like I said, I think the owners will reject, but maybe they come back with something closer to what the players are thinking, and, and that's how you deal, a deal gets done. Well, since you're around on a, a rainy, tornado-y uh, night, why don't you stop by at 9 o'clock? I want to talk to you about uh, Sammy Sosa, because Sosa and McGuire, we just got a chance to talk to Mickey Morandini. I want to get your thoughts on Sosa, on uh, whether or not he should return to the Cubs family and some other issues. So come back at 9 if you have time for us. I'm ready for you. No problem, Jay Hood. All right, I appreciate it. Uh, Jesse Rogers covers Major League Baseball for ESPN.com. Uh, I want to talk to Jesse a little bit long when we have a little bit more time, long form, uh, and talk about what's going on with, um, with Sammy Sosa and whether or not the documentary could be a springboard um, to him making his return to the Cubs. As you're listening to ESPN 1000, the ESPN Chicago app. Um, so just listening to what Jesse was just telling us moments ago, it just once again just is frustrating for me as a not just a baseball fan but as a sports fan that during this time this could be baseball on the main stage not the kbo but major league baseball could be on the main stage here and as jesse and jeff passner working on this you can read this on espn.com the major league baseball players association is making a proposal for two major league baseball um for a season of 89 games with a pro a full prorated share of salary and expanded playoffs um that uh, Jesse and uh, Jeff Passan have learned you know, it would bring the sides closer to a potential deal because it's it's 25 games fewer than the union's latest proposal of 114 games at full pro rata i um I'm just so sad that they, this, these two teams can't, uh, these two sides can't come together. The um, Tony Clark and the Players Association, and then on the other side, what's going on with the owners can't bring this together. You know, as is, as much as I'd like to have baseball, there's been some that just said, you know what, screw all this. 
someone just said, you know what, forget it. You know, like, like you're waiting for baseball to return. It was supposed to return in April, May. Now it's June, and it's June 9th. And clearly, many of us as sports fans have been able to go on with our lives without Major League Baseball. But baseball needs to be in the forefront. They need to be able to have the stage at this point in time because we are finding more and more things to do. You know, throughout this COVID-19, where uh, the shelter in place that we've been involved in for a long time, with the record unemployment that's going on in this country, of course, there's protests all across this country over George Floyd's death. Um, All of this. All of this is happening all at one time. And it had been great for Major League Baseball, and not necessarily to be able to take all of our eyes off of our troubles, but it's something, baseball's always been that sport. And I look at it as first a radio sport versus television, because there's nothing like when you're by yourself or if you're around family, the game is on in the backyard or whatever, or when you're in the garage and you're working on your car or washing your car, whatever, it just, the game is on and and you can just be able to travel yourself and turn on the game and the game is on television standpoint. When you've come home from work, come home from wherever and the game is on, you're, you, you're used to that in the spring and summer. It's just something because it's live sports and it's on. And Major League Baseball on both sides have taken that away from you and I as fans. And that's just really unfortunate. It's too bad. And, and it's not like sports don't have labor issues. We just talked about the 94 strike and how uh, I had to live through that as a young fan wondering when baseball will return. It ruined an opportunity for, I think, the White Sox to be able to go far. Same thing with the Montreal Expos. That was a special year, 94. That was supposed to be, I thought it was going to be Sox Expos. And um, not the case because of the strike. Over 200 days waiting for baseball to return because owners and players are going back and forth. It's just, uh, it's really unfortunate. Now, the National Hockey League and the NBA, more than likely, they will return before Major League Baseball does. As Jesse just mentioned, his prediction is that with this proposal that's been brought over by the um, by the Players Association, that the owners will probably turn this down, too. All over money. That's, that's what it is. Millionaires and billionaires fighting over money and trying to figure out how both sides can come together. I still believe... That owners can continue, whether it's Tom Ricketts or DeWitt or whoever, whoever wants to say that owners are crying poor, they don't have any money. Clearly, there's no revenue coming in because there's no games. You and I both know that. That's obvious, right? But the idea that that owners cannot be able to find a revenue stream or two to be able to play the, pay these players at some point, um, once, once we get back to some kind of normalcy, in which you and I can go to games, Miller Park, Guaranteed Rate, Wrigley Field, wherever you go to see games. Um, once that happens, players can be able to pay. Uh, these owners can be able to pay these players. But it's just, you know, <laughs> it's it's not happening. It's just so disappointing. I I just find this so tedious to be able to sit here every night and tell you about how millionaires and billionaires can't come together. Jesse's covering it on a daily basis, trying to give us the latest and writing about it on ESPN.com. And it's just an empty hole in our sports calendar. It's an empty hole on this show or all the shows. When we're talking about labor peace, trying to figure out how it can all come together. This is a, uh, just an empty hole because there is no traction. There is no 
togetherness on either side. And here we are, fans just stranded on the side of the road. Sucks. All right, coming up, we do Tales from the Hood, and we will get a chance to redraft Ooh, an awful 2000 NBA draft. The Bulls had two picks in the top 10 in the 2000 draft. Sean Davis and I will take a look uh, at the 2000 draft. We will redraft. Who should the Bulls? I mean, the Bulls take Marcus Pfizer. They took uh, Chris Mim in that draft. Now, the Bulls could have done much better in 2000 with hindsight. We'll take a look at that and also hear from our guy Andre Snellings from ESPN.com. That's next on UTH. Mm. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. What do you got, man? This is your car. My car? I said a 10-second car, not a 10-minute car. Pop the hood. Pop the hood? Pop the hood. Tales from the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Here we go. Tales from the Hood, stories of sports, entertainment, everything else in between. Glad that you're with me here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. We'll hear from Jesse Rogers. We'll reconnect with Jesse coming up at 9 o'clock. Get his thoughts on Sammy Sosa and McGuire. Don't forget that 30 for 30 is going to be on Sunday. So I look forward to talking to Jesse about that. Also, what's going on with the labor situation in Major League Baseball with the owners and the players? We'll get into that more with Jesse coming up at 9 o'clock. Um... Andre Snellings is our special guest from ESPN.com. Dre is going to help us out as far as trying to figure out the top 10 players as we redraft 2000. Boy, what an undertaking that's going to be. Boy, that's some ugliness there. But, Dre, you wrote a a great uh, column on ESPN.com. Now that you're listening, Roger Goodell, here are ways for NFL to affect change. You can find that again on ESPN.com. And Andre joins us here on ESPN 1000. Dre, thanks so much for your time. And thanks for having me, as always. Uh, great column, Dre, um, because this column reflects uh, so many um, that are dealing with what happened with George Floyd's death. Of course, he was laid to rest today. His funeral took place today in a, a great ceremony, a uh, great homegoing for him in uh, in Houston. I want to get your overall thoughts about Roger Goodell. That When you first saw his video... Uh, pretty much saying Black Lives Matter and saying the things that he could have said a few years ago. What was your initial reaction? Yeah, that that last thing that you said was kind of important. Um, kind of my first reaction was, why didn't you say this a few years ago? If it's coming from a sincere place, you know, I don't, I don't consider myself cynical in general. But when it comes to situations like this, you know, things don't often go the way that. I don't like to speak for others, the way that I think that they should go when it comes to race relations. And 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 so my first thought was, okay, if you, you know, it, it sounds nice. It, it sounds nice. It, it sounds like you directly answered the things that the players had challenged you on earlier um, that same day. And, and so, all right, sounds nice. But now, now I want you to, to show me what that means. You know, show me if you're sincere, then let's talk about, what are we going to do about this, you know, thing that you agree is now a problem? I just, um, my my thought was, is that, you know, Colin Kaepernick 
pretty it told it, the world, hey, we have to do something about police brutality in this country. And that was too hard of a conversation, apparently, for the owners, Roger Goodell, and, and many uh, NFL fans and people across the country. And now it's an issue. You know, now we go back to the Maya Angelou quote, right? Who, who, if, if you see the, somebody the first time, maybe this is exactly who they are. Uh, how exactly. much is this a, is a business decision made by Goodell in this regard? I think it, it, it's definitely a business decision. Um, I can't speak to the man's heart. I can't speak to what he wanted to do at any given time. We have to remember he's the face of a multi-billion-dollar corporation that has thirty-something billionaires that that all have some degree of autonomy, and he's essentially their spokesperson. So for him to say the things that he said in that 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 video, that had to mean that he had buy-in from the majority of those owners. Um, they, they just they, Otherwise, he couldn't speak for the business the, the, the way that he did. Um, and, yes, it, it's a business decision. Uh, uh, a guy named Joe Lockhart, he was a, a former White House press secretary, and he was also the NFL executive uh, VP of uh, Communications and Public Affairs during the era when, when Kaepernick was kneeling and the NFL was trying to decide what to do with it. And... He, he wrote an article recently on CNN, and, and he said outright that, you know, it was a money decision, that, 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 that the NFL's reaction to Kaepernick, that they had been told, some people had estimated that if they allowed him to keep kneeling and, and you know, essentially, it, it, <laughs> he didn't say it in so many words, but if they didn't get rid of him, then any team that signed him, they thought it could be like a 20 to 25% drop in their revenue, Um based on season tickets and and um, fan support. And the, they essentially they chose that math. And his article was all about how he was admitting he was wrong. This was, you know, five to six years, before, I mean, five to six days before Goodell's. He was saying that, that, yeah, we were wrong. We shouldn't have handled it that way. And so, yeah, there, there, there's business concerns in how they did then. And there's business reasons for why they made the about face now. Andre Snellings from ESPN.com with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. So, Dre, you've been around this show uh, a little bit now, and you kind of know me in that it's one thing to ask the question why, but we have to have some answers. And I think yeah. that you you, lay, you really laid out some answers for Goodell's next step. Let me just tell you, I just believe that the NFL, especially the owners, were afraid to look like the NBA. I think that's pretty clear because the NBA and the WNBA – uh, for stories like the George Floyd murder, they were wearing I Can't Breathe t-shirts. They were talking about right. this, and I think that scared the NFL, quite frankly, and they thought you know, somehow, some way, that that would scare off the clientele, which is complete BS, because no matter if you disagree or agree with a player, it's the NFL. It's the king of sports, so people are, are not going to tune out just because Kaepernick is on the field or others supporting his cause. So I, my thought is, is that I think it all comes down to finances and fear in that the where silver is open to allow players uh, in that league and also the WNBA to say what they want. But I don't think that they wanted that. I don't think, I don't think that uh, Sheriff Goodell wanted that for his league. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it all comes back to again, the, 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 the people that he's representing and who they believe, you know, to be important clientele. Like this article that I wrote, it's actually an evolution, um, and it's been a long time coming because the original I wrote two years ago when the NFL um, was trying to implement those policies to get people to stop kneeling. And, you know, a lot of my friends, a lot of people I know, a lot of people that look like me, 
um, were speaking out that, hey, we don't know if we can support the NFL anymore. You know, the, the, the way that they had treated Kaepernick, the way that they were sending the message essentially that, that almost like the equivalent of set up and dribble. You know, like mm-hmm. black players, you come out and play. You know, we don't, we don't want to hear this message. And so at that time, um, it, was, it was all about, yeah, let, let's, let's, let's not forget that there are black people that are NFL fans too. And that, that in, in trying to appease one set of people, it was very easy to alienate others. And I don't know that that, that made the league's bottom line until this situation, this is kind of a perfect storm, right? You know, with, with, with the coronavirus, not only were people inside, sports were gone. Um, you were able to really see a sequence of just blatant, you know, all of the, the negatives with health care associated with African-Americans. And then you had the tragedy with Ar- Ahmaud Arbery and then Breonna Taylor. And then you had the bird watcher dude that, that you know, the lady tried to get lynched. You know, it was yeah. just like all types of things back to back to back. And it just built up this groundswell. And then when George Floyd was killed the way that he was killed, and it was so blatant and so well covered on camera that it just, that the NFL is in a situation where they can't be on the wrong side right now. We saw that with Drew Brees. Drew Brees is beloved, right? He is a, a MVP. You know, he was the man in New Orleans. But he would, he, I think he, more than anybody else, showed the NFL that if we're on the wrong side of history with this, at this moment, it's not going to fly. And we have a league that we're hoping comes back in the fall, but the way things are shaking out now, they won't have a monopoly, right? Because the NBA is going to be playing up till October, take a quick break, and come right back in December. Not sure what's going to be going on with Major League Baseball, but if they alienate this really energized group of people, when, when you know once sports come back, there'll be alternatives there, and I, I think just you, you financially, this would just would not be good math for the NFL to be on the wrong side of it. Got a minute left before we break in uh, for you to laugh at Sean and I about the 2000 draft. Um, <laughs> but um, but don't forget, and I've been mentioning this several times on on several platforms, Dre. Don't forget the uh, the Jay Z piece of this. Don't forget Jay-Z yeah. now, cackling right next to Roger Goodell, saying, ah, we're done with the kneeling thing. And, and, mm-hmm. and it was like, oh, okay, so there, there, when I heard him say that next to Roger Goodell with the uh, select reporters that were there for the Jay-Z, Roger Goodell press conference, I thought, okay, there's a difference between Sean Carter and Jay-Z. And we saw it mm-hmm. right there. Because we haven't heard Jay-Z's thoughts. We're, we're done with the kneeling. We're done with, with uh, police brutality against black people. We're done with that. We're moving on to try to figure out what we're going to do with the, uh, with the halftime show for su- the Super Bowl. Just remember Jay-Z. No, nothing to say yeah. about it so far on the record. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just been it's interesting because, I, you know, I was never quite sure. I never came down quite that negatively with Jay-Z. I kind of took it that he was saying essentially what Malcolm Jenkins and the Player Coalition was, that, okay, we know – you know, that was great, but we need to get some action items, too. And so I always saw it like that. But, you know, and I think that's what the NFL has tried to do all along is we're just, okay, we did what we did to Kaepernick. Now let's find a way to move on. And I think this last, you know, effort by Goodell was an effort to do that. But Malcolm Jenkins came out today and said, look, we're not moving past this till you deal with Kaepernick. So they, you might not be able to slick talk this anymore. This might be something that just has to come to a head. 
Andre Snellings will be the referee between Sean Davis and I as we go through uh, the 2000 NBA draft. He laughs at us next on UTH. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Hi, everybody. On ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. How you doing? Follow us on the gram at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. So, Sean Davis and I, sometimes we get a chance to take a look at the NBA draft and we are able to go through some of these drafts and try to figure out how we could be able to help not only the Chicago Bulls, but just try to redraft uh, some of these teams. Now, listen, there's some of these drafts here that are just ugly at the top. Now, we go 1 through 10, and in the 2000 draft, this is the Speedy Claxton draft. This is Deshaun Stevenson, Dalibor Bargarich, Bulls fans. Uh, A.J. Guyton's in this draft. Jake Voskel is in this draft. Jamal Crawford, Mike Miller, um, uh, let's see, Joel Prisbilla is in this draft. Darius Miles, actually both knuckleheads, Davis is in this draft. Darius Miles and Quentin Richardson. <laughs> no wonder they have a podcast together. Um, so what we do is we redraft, and this one is going to be the 2000 draft. The Bulls have two picks in the 2000 draft, the number four pick and the number seven pick. So the number one pick, Davis, for... Uh, for the uh, 2000 draft is New Jersey. They had the number one pick, and they took Kenyon Martin. So in this draft, and it is ugly, right? There's some names on here. It's like, wow, where's the stars, right? <laughs> so I can't wait to hear the analytics on this draft from Dre because this has to be one of the, other than the Kwame Brown draft, this oh, one boy. has to be at the bottom analytically. I was looking through this, and I just wanted to make sure, and so... I don't know what you have for the number one pick in this draft, <laughs> but you know what? Seriously, the best player out of this draft is oh, Jamal Crawford. You think so? Yeah. Uh, Jamal I kinda, Crawford. I differ with you, but I see where you can go. I well, see why you can well, go there. Well, look, Jamal, Jamal Crawford gave you 19 years in the league, right? Facts. He could be playing today. If you you know he could be on somebody's bench as a three point shooter, gave you fourteen point six points a game, uh, and his three point shooting is at thirty five percent. But the point is, like, he was that dude for a, a while, and I just think that instead of Kenyon Martin, if you're, if we're going to redo this, I think Crawford's the best out of this out of this group, uh, the best of whatever is in this two thousand draft at least. <laughs> at the number one pick, I'm going to go a little bit different, and I'm going to say Michael Red. Is the number Hell one no. Not Dude, Michael Red. Look, Get the hell out of something. here with that. Michael let me tell Red. You something. Come on. Six man. straight, seven straight seasons of 20 points per game. <laughs> Wait a minute. Gold medal, multiple all stars. I mean, I understand he was a second round pick. I understand he was born. But what he did, he did bring some relevance to that Milwaukee squad. I have Michael Red second. <laughs> you did all that talking, and he's second on your list. <laughs> <laughs> now, I just gave you credit for Jamal. And you, you went at Michael Red like he was an ugly stepsister. He was the 43rd pick in the overall of that draft. Yeah. He was a second rounder. That shows you how weak years. it was. I mean, for him to jump all the way from the second round up to a number one and number two pick, this draft is woof. 
Okay, so Jamal Crawford, I got Michael Red second. So all right, and so what do you have? Jamal's number two for me. All right, so we're in the same page. Yeah, Jamal's number two for me. Three, I have Hito Turkalu. Mm, I'm gonna go Kenyon, number three. Come on, man! I'm now, gonna Turkle- go Kenyon, number three. Now Turkalu gave you, but uh, this is Kenyon with Jay Kidd at point guard. Turkaloo in the West, though, because this is the Clippers pick now, right? Turkaloo was tough even with Dwight Howard later in his career. I just think, I just think that you need a three point shot. He's always he's giving you forty percent from three. Turkaloo was special now, fifteen years in the league. Mm-hmm. And you went Kenyon Martin. I'm gonna go Kenyon. Okay, so that's your three. Yep. Fourth, I have, so this is the Bulls pick at four. Okay. At four, I took Kenyon Martin. At four, I'm gonna go. Mike Miller. Yeah, see. All right. At five, I got Mike Miller. And that's he's going to Orlando. Okay, at five I have Hedu. So you're saying so you say Mike Miller to the Bulls at four? Yes. That'd have been fine. Yeah, absolutely. I would have gone with that. We don't even have time to go through how good Mike Miller really is. I, you know, Andre for the us. back and on the foot injuries, absolutely. So I have at five I have uh Mike Miller going to Orlando and you have what? Uh, I have Hedo Turkaloo at five. Okay, so we're we're right there. Yeah, we're step to step. Okay, six uh, to Atlanta. I have Quentin Richardson. I have Quentin Richardson at six as well. Okay, they took Demar Johnson. Who is it? That definitely would have been an upgrade right there. Gosh. Okay. Bob Huggins got a lot of kickback in this draft from Demar Johnson (laughs) and Kenyon Martin. That's yeah. I mean, (laughs) there's a lot of jokes there, but I just. I'll leave their education alone. So Quentin Richardson at six, and you took who? I, Quentin as well. Quentin as six. well. Yeah. All right. At seven, this is the seventh pick for the Bulls now. Bulls took Chris Mim. So in the top ten, the Bulls took Marcus Pfizer at four. That was not – that's a bust. Sorry. That's a bust. And seven, Mim. I believe that was a trade. I can't – if I'm not mistaken. He was drafted been, by the Cavs? Mim never played for the Bulls, but he was drafted by the Bulls. I drafted by the Bulls and then traded to the Cavs, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, so Mim is drafted seven to the Bulls. I took Mo Peterson, Mo Pete there. What's wrong with that? Mo, Mo Pete from, from Michigan State? What's wrong with him? He was drafted 21st to Toronto. You know why? Because I'm thinking the brainchild, knowing the Bulls, they would have taken Darius Miles. They would have went oh. with the long, athletic kid out of high school. They definitely would have done that. Absolutely. Without a doubt. I know without a doubt that would have been the pick. Is that Krause? That's still yes. Krause, right? Yes. He would have fallen in love with Darius Miles and taken him at seven. There was a controversy at that time about the Bulls not taking homegrown talent, but they did take Eddie Curry, too. So Unfortunately, they, they chose the wrong guy to take. That was the absolute wrong guy. Someone that scores two points in a high school game downstate, that's the guy you take from Chicago early. Kenny Martin and Mo Pete gives you some toughness, If I mean, for the Bulls at four and seven. But Mo Pete isn't. Nice play. Nice, he's, he's a nice, nice player. No, 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 no. I don't disagree. He's a better player than Darius Miles, but I just think the Bulls would have taken Darius Miles. He had a better career, without, without a doubt. Ooh. I think so. <laughs> I don't think that's right. I, I think he had a better career than Darius Miles. <laughs> I mean, only because of injuries. Yeah. That definitely ended any upside that Darius Miles had. But if you look at the numbers, he probably had a better career. 
So eight is Jamal Crawford to uh, Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Uh, eight, I wrote down Desmond Mason. Ooh. Same type of player, but I'm going to go Deshaun Stevenson. Yeah, that's fine. Deshaun Utah? Stevenson. Yeah. 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 Uh, th- 13 years in the league? No, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. Nine, I took uh, Kenyon Dooling. I took Eddie House. Because of the in today's game, Eddie House's game would have matched and gone very well with today's game. So I took Kevon Dooling to go to Orlando at, uh, I'm sorry, to go to uh, Houston at nine. And I took Eddie House 10th. Yeah, that three-point shooting is, is dope. Yeah. So, and then 10, you have who? You know what? Don't laugh at me, man. I just had to take a big guy. I went ahead and took Jamal McGlure. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. nice nice career out of Kentucky. Mm-hmm. 12 years, that's yep. fine. So you so you're not doing anything with Stromile Swift as we bring oh, uh, no. as we bring Andre back into the conversation. H E double hockey stick, no, no, okay. <laughs> so so no Speedy Claxton. Like, hey no. man, his wife is more popular than him from basketball wise. So no, no I've seen Speedy. Her. Yes, I've seen her. Yes, I know. Mika definitely bigger than Speedy. That's that, that's that's like my joke about Gennaro Pargo. His biggest turnover was oh, his wow. divorce. Yes, <laughs> like. Um, so yeah, and so no Brian Cardinal, no you ain't doing that with <laughs> you ain't doing no no okay best dancer was uh Mad Max Mark Matson though that's true from that's his true. draft all right Dre so you're laughing at this so who is the best <laughs> player in the 2000 draft Woo. yeah y'all y'all picked a heck of a, a draft to go through when he first said 2000 I thought it was the um. <laughs> the 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 only one that might have been worse than this, um, with, with with you know Eddie Curry and all of them, but um, yeah, best player was probably in today's game I would say probably Michael Ridd. By the way, that was the most that was the best part of the draft. Um, you guys the draft when you said Michael Ridd number one. Oh hell no! I got Michael Ridd number two. Like, that that was hands down the best part of the night so far. <laughs> But um, actually, you know, Crawford, I was at Michigan while Crawford was at Michigan. And um, I was still running track. And one of my teammates was his roommate. And so um, I, I had Crawford's story. You know, I, I can't tell him on the air. I can tell you on the air. But, but um, you know, he was, uh, you know, he's an interesting cat. He did it way longer because Red only could do it for a handful of years before injuries took him out. But at his peak, he was hitting 26, 27 a game. And this was right in the, the nadir era when, when scoring was done. So, I heard you say in today's game. In today's game, Michael Red would have been a monster. Um, who else? Oh, you know, what else, what else I, stands out about this bad draft? Yeah, I feel like Kenyon Martin is funny. In a way, I feel like he's getting a bad rap because his numbers were never all that impressive. You know, for, for what, 10, 12 season, he was about 14 and 7. But he was a really good defender. And, and he was a good defender – in a way that kind of allowed, like that Nets team that we think of as Jason Kidd's team, he was the perfect power forward for that team. You know, he could he could play strong defense, he could get out and run, he could finish, you know, kids toss-up passes. And, I mean, he was still a big man. So I don't know how he would work in today's NBA because he couldn't shoot. But right. for the era that he was in, he, he was a pretty strong player. Whew, once you start getting down that list, um, you're talking about – uh, Darius Miles versus Mo Pete. Oh and my God! Pete, you know, like the fact that that was an argument, like significantly into the top ten. That wasn't even the, like the tenth pick. That was what six or seven. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Miles had all that potential, uh, and it, it never played out because of injuries or circumstances or whatever. And so, in, in that kind of comparison, Mo Peak was just a professional. He was just a, uh, I'm going to, you know, give you, you know, exactly what you're going to get from me. I'm, he, he could be a perfect role player on a championship team. And so, you know, I think when you're drafting, you would probably take Darius Miles, but ultimately, you probably would have gotten more value out of Mo Peak. Um, analytically, anything else that stands out? I mean, this is this is a bad draft. I mean, it, it's so yeah. bad. We we couldn't get Mateen in there. Mateen had a nice, great college career, just not very good in the pros. I just, man, it it you know, I, we you, know you know what it is. Go ahead. If we went analytically, we could make a pretty strong argument that Hito Turkoglu should have gone higher. Um, mm-hmm. because especially if we're talking about potentially today's NBA, like when people think about that Orlando team with Dwight Howard that made the finals against against the Lakers, people sleep on how ahead of its time the Hito Turkoglu Richard Lewis front court was because they were both the kind of six nine ish slim forwards that could shoot the three and just spread the court. And so it worked then because Dwight Howard was able to really gobble up the rebounds in the middle. But by the same token, they made life so much easier for Dwight by spreading the floor. And they're honestly the mismatch that allowed them to beat LeBron's Lakers because they didn't have anybody that could do anything. Like LeBron could take one of them, but whoever was on the other one was getting toasted. Larry and Hughes. And it's the same, you know, it's the same <laughs> Larry thing. Hughes. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, when You know, that team also beat the Celtics in 09 because Garnett was out. And it was because they couldn't handle both of those forwards. Then the next year, Garnett came back, and it was, you know, it was a different story. But, but those two by themselves, were, were, that was just a really difficult matchup. So in this draft, you could argue that Herculeus should have been number one. All right, my friend. I'm glad you spent some time with us going over this hor- this horrific draft of 2000. <laughs> but we needed you to be the referee, so thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for having me, as always. Uh, Hopefully next time the draft will be better. <laughs> I don't think so. It's going to be 2001. Uh, Andre Stellings oh, <laughs> with <no>. us here <laughs> on ESPN 1000. Coming up, we'll hear from Jesse Rogers. Um, his thoughts about Sammy Sosa. Should Sammy Sosa be back into the uh, Chicago Cubs circle. And also, don't forget, Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. If you're a wrestling fan or know of one, tell them to tune in at 9.30 for Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. All part of the mix right here on WMVP Chicago. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports.